0: Welcome to the Building the Elite podcast, where we discuss the physical, mental, and emotional aspects of human performance within military special operations by looking at the principles that can help anyone thrive in chaotic and challenging environments.
1: Chris Klaftenegger was a special operations medic in two different military branches, and he has been to selection courses in the U.S. Navy, Marines, and Air Force. He began his career as a SARC, a Special Amphibious Recon Corpsman at 1st Recon Battalion. After that, he transferred to a reserve unit of the Air Force and went through selection and training to become a para also known as a PJ. Along the way, he attended countless other schools, ranging from the Coast Guard's Advanced Rescue Swimmer School to Avalanche and Tactical Structural Collapse Search and Rescue Schools. Chris then worked in private security as an emergency response medic and personal security specialist, and then as a medical instructor. Following that, he transitioned to the world of business and technology. He is currently the chief operating officer of Onyx Industries, a company of former special operators making intelligent unmanned systems and airborne solutions for the defense industry. Chris, can you just start by telling us your kind of the overview of your military journey? You were in a lot of places. Where did you start and where did you end up in the military?
0: My journey started in Alaska, actually. I was climbing in the Alaska Range, and uh, when we came off the mountain, we ended up in a van down with uh, with a couple of p- PJs, pararescue guys from the Alaska team. They were coming off Denali, uh, doing a, a rotation there, and we just started chatting, and I knew immediately that these guys were, one, they came off Denali, which is you know, a pretty famous mountain. They told us what they've been doing, so they've been on they, – backfill the park rangers um and they do rescue out there and and pjs are rescue specialists rope rescue mountain rescue pretty much any environment rescue specialists it's kind of their focused mission set Um, so they do that for the state of alaska uh, along with another a lot of other rescue type missions but we ended up with them as a captured audience for about an hour Uh, they had the best gear so that immediately grabbed my eye because we saved for probably a year worked at climbing shops so we could get discounts and stuff to get our equipment and mm-hmm. they walked in with just the the gucciest of gucci gear so immediately i was like hey, who are you guys and what are you doing they explained what they'd been doing and they explained pararescue and when they left i was like that's that's what i want to do so i went back home back to texas and started training contacted the alaska team and got with their recruiters and went through their kind of a preliminary hiring process Passed the that part And then had to take the physical screening, the past, Uh, went to Indoc to do it in San Antonio and didn't pass the first time. Went back, trained for a couple more months and came back and passed again. And when it came time for me to actually make the commitment to join, um, it sounded shady to me Uh, for some reason. I didn't have a lot of experience (laughs) at that point for uh, with with the military or any of that other than the two guys that I talked to. Um, It's a guard team. So there's no guarantee and there's no guarantee in any of these pipelines, which I didn't really understand. like If I'm going to move to Alaska and go out on a limb and do this and join the Air Force and then there's no guarantee that I get a job, I just kind of didn't make sense to me. So I decided to pass on it at that point, kind of embarked on a nationwide road trip in uh, my van at the time and ended up in (laughs) Prescott, Arizona (laughs) and kind of circled back around to medicine and uh, got my EMTB. I was working in the ambulance. Um, and then also in the ER at Yavapai hospital. And while I was, I was working night shifts in the hospital, in the ER as a tech. And then I was running days and nights and 24 hour shifts and stuff with, uh, with the ambulance service locally. And I loved it. I loved pre-hospital medicine, which I didn't know I had an affinity for at the time. And there was a guy that came on again. The Prescott fire department is pretty small. You can't walk on. I had buddies, climbing buddies and a mountain biking buddies and stuff that that had been trying for years they're on the reserves they're doing it for free and nobody could get in this guy walked on and walked into the er for the night shift to do his hospital rotation for the fire department he was tatted up he was huge jacked shaped head and i was like okay <laughs> who are you and what do you do and he was like i was i was a pj And i was like awesome that and i told him my story hey i was thinking and then at that point i was thinking about going back in down to the air force recruiter and just joining and, and running with it and uh we talked all night because it was pretty slow and he was uh from the two four which uh for those that don't know about uh, the two four they that's a PJ unit that that services and supports other entities um usually tier one, 2, two, or what have you so those guys get attached um as the rescue and recovery and specialists to those uh those units so he um uh, Told me at that point that if he could do it all again, he'd be a a SEAL. And Mm -hmm. I was like, well, okay. PJ SEAL kind of seems the same to me, not knowing anything about it. I guess I'll join the Navy. So that morning (laughs) I went over to the, in Prescott at that point, there was no Air Force recruiter. I had to go to Phoenix. So I was like, well, that's easier. I just joined the Navy. Um, So I did and went past the MEP stuff, went down to Phoenix for that, and then moved everything back home. In preparation, I shipped into the Navy from home, from Texas, uh, Houston at the time. I guess fast forward through boot camp. At that point, um, I joined to be a SEAL and got in the SEAL program, got a, a corpsman slot uh, guaranteed. And at that point, the Navy was sending the corpsman to BUDS first. So I went boot camp straight to BUDS.
1: Before core school? Yeah. Oh, weird. Huh.
0: They were seeing a lot of washouts as corpsmen. I don't know what the the rationale behind it was but they just decided that they weren't going to make they weren't going to bring Corman in they had been through core school they were going to send them to core school after they made it through buds so that's what we ended up doing me and a buddy i met at boot camp we went and ended up rooming together at buds went through pre-phase went through beginning of first phase and literally the day before hell week i we were doing rock portage uh, that day and it was pretty big el nino year and i was pretty terrified so I decided I had another place to be, so I went ahead and dropped out, rang the bell, and pretty quickly, after the relief from not having to do rock portage set in, the reality and regret kind of set in, and and I realized that I kind of made a mistake, and I decided to jump full bore into my pursuit of uh, being a corpsman and trying to get into some other type specialty. As luck would have it, I got stuck at the aid station at Onbuds, so I got to see my team continue on for the next couple of months while I waited to go to core school which wasn't a guarantee once you what I did know in my contract is once you wash out and quit then you kind of lose your contract and they will put you at the needs of the Navy luckily I had I made a good impression very quickly at the aid station and the doctor backed me and there, actually a, a seal that had been injured was the uh, lead enlisted guy for the clinic and they sponsored me to go to uh, through the command to go to core school so I got mm-hmm. what I what I was seeking. Went through core school up in Great Lakes, finished that, and then got sent to the West Coast for field med. And in field med, I met a recon guy, recon corpsman. And he had seen me and a couple guys training uh, during the, the course and extra time. We were just kind of always moving and tended to do pretty well in the scholastic side of the of field med. And he was like, hey, we're doing a screening. Come out and take the screening. So I did and passed and then ended up going to force going through rip uh recon indoctrination program and pre-scuba and i think i did pre-scuba twice was at force recon training with those guys for about two and a half maybe three months before i got to go to the basic reconnaissance course and kick off my pipeline went through the recon pipeline did did pretty well ended up uh grabbing honor grad out of the um special operations combat medic course and at Bragg the short course uh, of 18 delta and then got put in at uh, first recon battalion on the west coast
1: at that point how would you compare the two training experiences between what you saw of buds and brc of recon training what was different there or what was the same
0: the main thing at buds was i i don't think mentally i was prepared i made the mistake of pulling back and kind of isolating myself um thinking i wasn't maybe this wasn't the place for me or whatever that 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 road should go down towards negativity I think all of us experience it a lot of times during our lives. I've definitely experienced it since the choice is not to continue down that road. The choice is to distra- distract yourself, focus on what you can control, train, and get through the next minute, get through the next 10 minutes. And then on the other side of that is going to be you know, the next challenge to do that and the next challenge to do that and, and really not focus on the whole thing because it's it's yeah. immense in the beginning um, and pretty daunting. And it's very easy to slip into that, that mental state. So I I let myself do that. And I knew that road going into to recon and and going through rip and going through that stuff really prepared me physically. Yeah, I was doing fine at Bud's. I was passing everything, all the pool, you know, open waters and I was middle of the pack on the most things. So never failed anything. I just reached that point and was like, had a weak moment and, and made a, made a decision. So, I mean, truth be told, I was scared, you know, I think it's normal to be scared. Um, And that's something I learned later is that everybody's, scared yeah it's just it's what you do with that fear and let what you don't let it control you you use it to keep you sharp you use it to push you through training and preparation and then you, you support your team you know you support the guy left and right make it about them um and typically it will keep you out of your own head i kind of grew with that really got into the team uh through rip and got into the the culture of really the marine corps uh, because the as a corpsman we're in the navy but you're surrounded my entire team was, was all Marines, uh, mm-hmm. going through school. We had very, I had have a couple of corpsmen with me t- typically, but you know, the preponderance of the, of the attendance was all Marines until I got to the army school. And then it was a mixture of army, Navy SEALs, recon guys, PJs and stuff. Um, so really just getting into the team atmosphere and, and throwing yourself into that with both feet, um, and supporting the guy left and right. That keeps you, um, honest and it keeps you moving forward. Typically.
1: We've been working on that a lot, exactly what you described. And it, it's, statistically true in pretty much any selection course where like for your example you're in buds you're you haven't failed anything you're physically where you need to be you're you're not top performer sure but you're in the pack but at some point you reach this conclusion that either I don't feel like I belong here or other people don't feel like I belong here and I believe them and that is unrelated to your objectively measured performance in the course like You could have just made the other decision and continued on, but the thing that deterred you wasn't like a physical reality. It wasn't that you were physically incapable. It was just something that happened emotionally. It's sort of like a a weird version of imposter syndrome or something like that, where you pulled yourself back and just thought like, they're going to find out that I don't belong here. And you rang the bell. And that seems to be the case in, in most courses you know, like once you eliminate the people who just physically aren't capable of being there at all, which is pretty early in the process, a lot of the attrition comes down to mental and emotional factors. And it seems like in your case, you learned how to regulate that much better uh, and then went through recon training.
0: That's 100% accurate in what I've seen, you know, throughout whether I was a student or whether I was training people to go into, you know, the career fields. A lot of times you could identify it. Somebody, being, it'd be a self-fulfilling prophecy. They would they'd end up doing exactly what I thought they would do despite supporting everybody and, and beating everybody exactly the same. Mm-hmm. There are guys that enjoy it and there are guys that don't. And sometimes those guys, there there were the occasions though, where I was, I was surprised and people that I thought initially, Hey, were, you know, had some shortfalls and stuff. They corrected it and they, their desire to to succeed and be part of the team and to make it through training, you know, rang true. And I really, I enjoyed that part later on, not to jump too far forward, but I really enjoyed taking guys, from grass eater and meat eater, and you'd see that transition and that them slowly develop some faster than others. Some guys started really strong in other, in some ways, and then other ways you can always find a weakness. And that certainly mm-hmm. back to your question about the the differences between the training, between buds and, and recon. And then uh, when I went through the pararescue training um, later in the story, but the, the place they get you to is the same. The method might be a little bit different. There's some nuance to the method of getting you to the point where you start to question your fortitude, your own backbone, you start to internalize every bit of selection that I've been through, every training course, every, um, I mean, even down to workouts, you know, there's a point in a workout where you, you're like, oh, this is, this hurts, this sucks. And then you, and you either push through or you take a break, you know, it's like, that's mm-hmm. kind of a really micro example of that, that place they get you to. Um, and it's just, just that moment where you start to question and that, that, that seed gets planted and some people can't push past that to decide not to push past that. And that's what the, you know, that's what selection's all about. At that point yeah. in my, at the buds portion in my life, when I was there, I wasn't ready for whatever reason. And I quit and I'll be the, you know, the first guy that not make excuses about it. It wasn't medical. It wasn't you know, physical. It was, I was mentally unprepared, not prepared for that, hmm. that part of my journey, but I learned from it. I corrected it. And beyond that, a lot of guys don't recover from something like that. They never go back. Yeah. i never revisit. But in my case, I looked at my situation. I didn't want to go to the fleet. Um, I wanted to be surrounded by people that were going to push me to excel. Um, And Mm -hmm. I wanted that mission. You know, I realized, made the adjustment in my training, both physically and mentally, and made the the decision not to let that happen again. So I think that that carried me through and still carries me through now, um, through difficult times and definitely played into pararescue doing that. That was something I wanted to circle back on after not doing it having the chance, you know, and kind of dropping out, that was a quitting moment for me. I made the decision not to do it. And, you know, I I felt when I got out of the Navy that, uh, I needed to circle back and do that. That mission set made sense to me and that was something I wanted to accomplish. So fast forwarding after I got out of the Navy, I decided to try out for the California pararescue team. I was out there. My wife's from the North, Northern California. And got past the screening and got in that went through their process. Um, California is a guard team also like Alaska. The good part is that you get to go to the team and train, you know, the team that you're, that you're going to go to training the pipeline from, and then you get to go back there as well. So that's, that's good in some ways and bad in other ways. And um, the good part is that I got a really active glimpse into the the culture and the mission set. And I got to support it in the way that um, that students can. So cleaning and, prepping and lifting and you know doing all the things that the jays didn't want to do um we would do to support that i felt like i was part of that team already part of the mission and you get to see them spin up for missions you get to see them fly out and jump and go out on the boats and do all the things you know for training and watch guys leave for deployment and come back so that part was was good because i not only was i part of the the student process that i had that i wanted to go through that i had to go through but i was also part of the team and i had a place as long as i did my part and pulled my weight which was to make it through the pipeline do the best i can represent the team and then train you know to be able to be successful so another advantage i had was i had some rank and i'd been through a selection before i i deployed with teams i'd you know done all of that so Mm -hmm. that part I, i understood the game so to speak and usually i got put in leadership positions so that helped me again that expanded my scope of the guy left and right to like now I'm taking care of the entire team. It's about them, not about me. So that made right. it very simple for me to get up and push through because I I needed to do that for them, in addition to my own goals and stuff. So
1: yeah, and that that was probably a factor. And you were honor man in your or honor grad in your PJ class, or at several different stages in that pipeline.
0: A lot of it is is luck of the team. Um, I trained hard to to be there. I was always a pretty good swimmer, finner you know at buds in the navy and then through, with recon that's a big part of their we swam insert for everything so you're always finning we're always swimming we're always in the water i worked hard and comp- i was highly competitive and ended up on top at the end of indoc and then i'd gone through all the schools as a corpsman. so i went through i didn't have to go to boot camp i went straight to indoc uh when i had the chance it took about a year to get through the the entire process of hiring and getting in a, a slot cuz guard guys only get so many slots in the schools so it took me about a year to get through the medical portion and then to go to indoc. Um, ended up lucky enough to, to be healthy throughout, ended up having the points to be honor grad out of that. And then I went to Hilo Dunker training. I didn't have to go to survival, i would already been in the Navy. I'd gone to jump, static line jump and dive school in the Navy with the Marines. And so I didn't have to do that. And then I went to free fall and PJU. So PJU is like the culminating school at the end of the Rescue pipeline. It's about six months. I also had my medic too. I'd gone to SAMC, Special Operations Combat Medic course, through the Army when I was in the Navy. And Mm -hmm. so I didn't have to, I had my paramedic. It was current. So I didn't have to uh, go through the pararescue medical, paramedic portion. As a part of the PJU, at that part of the pipeline, they have a field med month. So I went through that with them. And then it's five months of basically going through all the environments and different applications of rescue and then learning how to. Do it with helicopters. How to do it in the mountains? How to navigate? How to do tactics? How to do water ops and jump ops in the water? And so all of those environments, you kind of you get your intro to rescue in all those environments.
1: So going from being a recon medic or a SARC to a PJ, what was the difference that you saw in the in the training and the missions? Like, what were the distinctions between those two communities?
0: We commiserated on like it'd be cool if. Imagine if we had a, a platoon full of corpsmen, what that would be like. Cause we, you know, we tended to be kind of of the same mind. We all enjoyed the medicine and that application to to the mission. Um, and that was always something early. So I came in in 98 and then I got to the teams in 2001. At that point, we were pre everything basically. I literally got to the battalion in, I think, the beginning of August. And then September was September 11th. So, we were still at that old training mindset, the old Vietnam. We had Vietnam era gear. We had kind of a Vietnam era uh, mindset as far as training and the missions we prepared for and stuff. I think the most recent kind of revelation in, in combat medicine was from Somalia, from Black Hawk Down. That had happened in, what, 92, 93. The lessons learned from that were really starting to permeate and trickle through. It got to the school and we learned a lot of the tourniquets first and the you know the differences between street medicine and field medicine. Yeah. So I think that in military medicine specifically. So I think a lot of those lessons learned were starting to really trickle and permeate, but we didn't have a, a war, you know, we didn't have that. So it was all training. right? And then September 11th happened and then it changed everything. Then Iraq kicked off and Afghanistan kicked off and, and we kind of went from there. So,
1: so you saw the really rapid evolution of combat medicine because a lot of say pre nine 11, a lot of tactical medicine was informed by civilian medicine so it was under the assumption that you would have good lighting sanitary conditions a stretcher you know you hit everyone with ivs probably a lot of changed like
0: the emphasis on tourniquets and the difference between being a uh, recon corpsman and being a pararescueman i think and and mentioning that the uh it always be cool if we had a a team of of corpsman because then our mindset would be the same we'd kind of we we focus on medicine like we think we should. That's you know that's our, our, that's what we do. But that wasn't the reality. With recon, mm-hmm. we have one. We have one platoon corman. Uh, we had really a shortage of corman anyway. When things really got spun up towards Iraq during the invasion, I was on the Mew, the boat, where, which is a scheduled deployment Marine Expeditionary Unit, and then we were the recon element in support of two one, which is two one battalion, and they had a sniper. They had a force platoon with us as well on boat on ship, um, and we steamed over. would would normally be a westpac in the western deployment to the south pacific and that's it's a scheduled thing and those guys would go to africa they'd go to uh, okinawa they'd go to australia and they'd go in the the uh off the horn of africa and they do a lot of you know either training or with other units uh that we're friendly with or they would do you know some small stuff small mission stuff um nothing huge usually traditionally and for ours, we steamed straight over for our, the the war in Iraq, so the, for the invasion. So for that, I was just my platoon. I had my platoon guys, and that's who I took care of throughout the entire invasion. When we went back as a battalion, I was a platoon corpsman and also the, the company corpsman. So Alpha Company was a company I was with. Alpha One was the platoon I was with. So not only was I a platoon corpsman, but I was a company corpsman also. So I had to take care of and communicate with and get equipment with and support all the corpsmen in Alpha that supported each platoon you know as a as a corpsman a lot of you're by yourself i'm the only medical asset i train my marines to do all of the initial contact type stuff mm-hmm. which we learned that was a lot of the lessons learned with medicine um, and a lot of the between street medicine is you don't not going to run if somebody gets t- gets gets shot or gets blown up or gets or injured we're going to assess the scene we're going to set up security they're going to get them behind something where they can protect themselves you're going to throw them a tourniquet they can put on themselves so, self care, buddy care, and then ultimately medic or corpsman care, um, or PJ mm. care, is was kind of the, the mindset. What well, we taught our Marines and uh, my guys in my platoon were great. Everybody that every platoon that I was that I was lucky enough to be part of and to be the corpsman for, like all of the guys were hungry for that medical training. They wanted to be prepared when it came time because we were all preparing to take care of our buddies, you know. And that stuff's going to happen. So I took it serious, and they were really good. I mean, better than a lot of. You know, corpsman I'd, or medics and corpsman I'd seen throughout my my training at that point, just hungry, and they did exactly what they were supposed to. So that part was, you know, I think the main difference is there's one of us in with a lot of Marines, and the focus is the Marine mission, is the reconnaissance mission, is the is that, and then you know, secondary, tertiary, or even further is preparing for medicine. And at that point, a lot of the attitude was, you know, like when it happens, we'll deal with it. You know, instead of preparing for it. And I think watching that transition was. You know after afghanistan and after iraq and after it really got hairy in iraq and with the ids and stuff we're seeing some really uh traumatic injuries some really just devastating life-changing injuries that happened that were happening to guys and those guys were having to deal with those injuries on the x on site you know i think that that really changed the focus they're like oh, we really need to focus on medical training it, it actually works it actually saves lives and we're actually they're actually guys getting hurt you know so that shift seeing that shift happen was I want to say it's cool because it's, it's not cool that we were there. People are getting hurt. Like, you don't want that. But it was cool to see the validation of, of the presence of the corpsman and the, getting to, to actually do your job. I was lucky enough during my deployments with those guys to – actually, all my deployments – to never have to treat any of my guys on anything that was life-changing, life-threatening, or I didn't lose any of my guys. So hmm. I was lucky. I treated a lot of Iraqis. I treated a lot of Afghanis and a lot of Brits and a lot of other people but not my guys. So I was, I was really fortunate, you know, in that, uh, funny, uh, story coming out of school and just speaking to the training transition into, into real medicine and real combat was, um, on the invasion, my platoon, we got tasked with being across the river on the invasion portion. Um, and we were at Uncasar and we were going to be on the other side of the river kind of by ourselves. The battalion was going to go up through Uncasar and do their thing. And then we were uh, the recon element, we were going to take to the other side of the river kind of by ourselves with vehicles. And then we were going to link up with the Royal Dragoon tank guys at some point. That was kind of the, the plan. But we slung load under 53s to go in. Um, so the, uh, I mean, you know, crazy anticipation, of course, first time in co- getting actual, you know, what my thought was combat, you, you, what you think it's going to be like you come in with 53s, and I'm sure it's just this, you know, it's a huge scene. We've got probably eight vehicles, slung load under 53s. We're all coming in. They're getting it. we would rehearse this at nauseum, getting detached, getting the vehicles up and, and moving. And as soon as we get in, they put us into a like kind of a bog. <laughs> I, just during the, whatever season in Iraq, we, we were unlucky enough to, to have it just have rained. And the, the, the dirt in a lot of regions in, in southern Iraq was uh, real silty. So when it gets wet, it turns into just muck. There's no bottom to it. It's not like it's mud and then there's hard pack. It's like, it's just, a, <laughs> it's quicksand basically. Yeah. So all of our vehicles got stuck immediately. <laughs> as soon as we insert all of our vehicles got stuck. So we're like, America comes in lands. And then we're like, you know, it was almost comical. You're like trying to, <laughs> you know, be guns out be in a 360. And like they have guys try to un- get us unstuck. We finally get out of it. And we're like right at a, a guard tower on one side of this berm and uh i was a uh, Corman, but i was also the ended up being the mark 19 gunner so the 40 mm. 40 millimeter grenade launcher on my truck and the guys came out of the guard shack while we're stuck and i launched a couple of mark 19 rounds down towards it and they immediately gave up so we had a team go out and get them and secure them and lay them out and, and put them in in position and then um we got all the trucks unstuck and then from then on we it, it went as smooth as it could. We had other hiccups, but that was the like on insertion. Like you think this vision of like what it's going to be like, and then yeah, yeah. We get
1: <laughs> and then everyone just sits in the mud.
0: Yeah, stress was high and IQs were low for a little bit. But
1: uh, <laughs> can we back up a bit? To so you were a you were a recon instructor, like training the new guys coming into the pipeline, right?
0: When I got back from the mu we got back for the invasion on ship. In between that, I was a little bit short. I had about a year left in my contract and i got put in the to pre-brc pre-dive pre-brc so we run courses to prepare guys for the recon marines and sailors for the pipeline at the aid station we would ha- we would get corman they were interested we'd screen corman. they'd come in as like they get chopped to us for a minute and then waiting to go to pre-brc and then we would train them up and then they'd go to pre-brc pre-dive and then they'd go to school so we we got a group uh, in between there, and I was super stoked because I love training guys, and I was the lead corman, the only corman in the cadre. So we had a full cadre, a couple sergeants, myself, I was an E5 at the time, and then some corporals, E4s, that were just we were going to run a great course. We had a great group of dudes that had all come off um, either Afghanistan and Iraq or just Iraq. Um, so we're all pretty pretty jazzed to be able to to run a course and to prepare guys, you know, and bring in that foster in that next round of people into the, into the battalion and into, into recon and stuff. So pretty neat, pretty proud. We were, you know, we had a great course built up and we ran it like usual, a little bit ad hoc, a little bit planned, you know, a little bit ebb and flow as to how the, the, the class would respond to what we're doing. And at that point it hadn't really built up like a formal course, but we were in the process. So we had some stuff that was set and we had some stuff that we'd just like go with, you know, on the fly, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, and it worked before that. and. I know there've been other instances where this, you know, the same thing happened to us happened. But so we go through the course. We're about week three in like a four or five week BRC pre BRC course, and we had a guy that was, you know, every course has a guy that uh, just doesn't isn't cutting it physically, mentally, all the things. But you, you know, we we push them along and and we let them actually have to utter their words like I, I'm done. Mm -hmm. So this particular guy, we had like 11 counseling statements on, you know, we're doing five days a week and they had weekends off. So we had like 11 counseling statements in that three week period for him. He'd fallen short on everything. We put a, a Lance corporal in charge of him. So an E three in charge of him and he was a Sergeant and just not cutting it. You know, it's just not, it's just not working out, but he wouldn't quit. Not verbally. He'd kind of quit by action, but he'd always kind of just the last minute catch up to the back of the pack or kind of squeak in so we're like ah, at some point this guy's you know we're gonna have to go to this guy so so at the end of the day we'd gotten them a mascot so they had a bunch of stuff they had to carry they had sandbags and ammo cans and shovels and picks and the guns and their packs and it just looked like shantytown running down the thief. but they had to all the it <laughs> all the time on one of the first couple of days we went in the little river that's that was by margarita on pendleton and they were doing low crawls and stuff and somebody found one of the instructors found a Crawfish <laughs> So mm-hmm. we gave the team, the crawfish. And we're like, Hey, if, if you know, you need to keep this thing on guard at all times, locked up, if we catch it and it's by itself, it's not going to end well, you know? So we of course set up an impossible situation and they ended up leaving it exposed at some point. And the corporals got <laughs> hold of it and ended up killing it. And they didn't know about it at the time. So we took, it was a Friday before the weekend and we're taking a test and we had a physical, you know, PT in the morning and just a normal day. We get to the end of the day and we're like okay we're gonna cut you guys loose go ahead and grab all your gear grab the crawfish and let's let's wrap it up they go get him and they bring him and they're like you know he's dead in his cage so we're like okay well we're gonna we're gonna have to charge up the hill so recon hill was at the back of margarita and it was a, a whole process to get up it so they grabbed all their gear ran up the hill and we knew ahead of time that that um, this individual was gonna fall out immediately because we've been beating him up pretty pretty good that week and he immediately fell out on the flat part running up to the hill so I, being the corpsman, we had a safety vehicle. If a student falls behind enough to where the safety vehicle is pushed to be out of sight of the main body, mm-hmm. then typically the guy's got to jump in the truck, and that's failure to train. So that was mm-hmm. kind of the plan. And uh, he fell back, fell back, fell back, and finally I was like, hey. And I pulled four dudes from the, the pack, and I was like, hey, you're down, you're dead, um, or you're injured. Now these guys are going to carry you. So they these guys picked him up with all their gear and carried him up the hill. and. <laughs> all the way the entire way they kept up to to the main pack so we we get to the base of recon hill and at the at the the very top it's like you hit this this point and then it's like this really steep portion with with soft sand at the top that's the funnest part so i i said hey put him down okay you guys are dead now you because you got carried up here you're going to carry every one of these guys up this portion (laughs) we'll join the team and the team, meanwhile, is getting smoked on top of the hill. They're doing all kinds of round robins and they're digging graves. And we were going to bury the crawfish. And <laughs> uh, one of the last minute decisions we made was to create a grave for this particular individual. He grabbed a guy and couldn't even take two steps forward. He fall over and he's being dramatic. And I'm like, all right, you know. So I grabbed a dude and I ran up the hill and he joined the, the party. So there's three more left. And I'm like, okay, screw it. You guys you guys are revived again you you're wasting time now because i'm i'm not trying to spend all night there either it's friday those three guys carried uh this individual up the hill and put him in the grave that we dug for him too it was pretty hard pack up there so we couldn't really dig a deep grave It was kind of a scratch grave and we had like teaching point you know like hey don't want to be this guy the last guy in the pack like kind of made it a a teaching point for the whole class Mm -hmm. and then we did burial and we had we had a, like a six or seven gun sl- rubber, rubber nug, um, fake, uh, <laughs> salute for the crawfish. And we had a couple of instructors say some kind words about the crawfish. And then <laughs> when it came time for this particular individual to be addressed, everybody was like, no, we're good. We don't need to say anything about him. So we, we wrapped it up and left and that, that was enough for that guy. He decided he was going to, he was going to quit, but he also felt like he'd been hazed. So His perception was that and perception is reality in the marine corps and also in in the defense as a whole like when it gets to that point like it can go real bad real quick um Mm. right runner indifferent we got removed because of that they brought in a different cadre to teach the rest of that course we had every every one of the students wrote statements about the course about us about that about the particular event everything and you know it was glowing everybody had a great time and it was good training but the command had to do what they had to do and ended up put, ran running all of us up the flagpole. And we got charged with hazing and had to get some non-judicial punishment. You know, loss of pay, loss of some, did some restriction. Um, wow. They moved us. They took us out of the cadre and actually put us into a platoon uh, all together. And we went over with the battalion to Iraq for Fallujah Ramadi. So it ended up being okay. I mean, that was a great, that was a, that was an experience. I won't say it was a great experience, but it was an experience to go through that and good group of dudes to be in a platoon with. So couldn't complain too much, but that kind of gave me a bad taste in my mouth for just the the situation I was in and my progression as an operator within that community. So that was when I kind of, I'd been thinking about it, you know, circling back and going to the Alaska because of the Alaska thing. Um, I was mm-hmm. like, hey, I'm gonna figure out how I can cross over. And I'd met some PJs and seen, and I'm like, hey, quality life's great, the mission's great, gear is great, therefore seems like a good deal. So. I made the decision at that point, kind of catalyzed by that event to go ahead and just get out and cross over. However, I was going to do that, I didn't know at that point. But uh, that was, I guess what I would call burnout. You know, whatever causes burnout causes it, pushes you to move on to kind of decide when you're done, when you're done. And I don't really consider that being, a lot of, a lot of guys say I quit the quit the career field. And some guys would say that life is life. You're going to pivot. You're going to keep doing what you're doing. And somebody told me early on, I don't remember actually who it was, but somebody I respected was like, Hey, whenever it's time to go, you'll know. At that point, I'm like, early on in my career, I'm like, I'm never getting out. I'm gonna do this forever. He was like, Hey, you'll know when you know, and when it's time to go, you go like, don't hesitate. There's no shame in that. So when I reached that, I wasn't done, done with, with operating, with doing a mission, but I was definitely done at that particular point with those guys. So. That, that kind of catalyzed my, my decision to move on and to try out for, to be a PJ.
1: It's understandable. It's surprising really, because that's like a very mild version really of, of some of the things that go on in a lot of selection courses. And, and it's, it's kind of what you sign up for as well. And knowing if you're like the weakest guy in this entire group, like that you're going to be singled out and isolated for that because it's, I mean, it's what these courses are meant to do. So I could see that as, yeah, absolutely feeling like a like a betrayal by your own community in a sense, like I'm supposed to use profanity on the podcast, but <laughs> I don't have great feelings about like that kind of a person who would be the guy who was like the weakest person in the class and then acts like it's not his fault that he had to do things that recon students do, you know? I mean, people die in these courses on a regular basis. It's that intense. And to think that you're not going to have to carry your buddies up a hill because you're, because you suck is,
0: that's insane. You know, not to belabor that, that point too much, but we did peer too. He did horrible on the peer because there's some, we wanted to know, is this something that, that, you know, cause there are guys that that fall short, even in selection, even in taking like the, the initial screening, you don't take just the screening. If a guy doesn't make the pushups or the pull-ups or the run, but is a beast and, is, you know, there's a lot of other factors and I've heard it talked about different ways, you know, one way as human performance optimization started becoming more of a thing and they, they wanted to identify the X factor. Like what is the difference between an Olympic athlete that comes into a pipeline for whatever job and quits and then that Iowa farm boy that really has no market physical achievements prior to joining but just excels and crushes it.
1: Just never stops, yeah.
0: What's the X factor here? There's a lot of speculation. There's like psychological like tests, there's, you know, there's blood testing, there's, you know, there's all kinds of stuff going on since then and now that there are people are still trying to identify it, you know, and I and like I mentioned before, sometimes you can see it in a guy and sometimes guys will surprise you. Like you never yeah. really know. You just got to let them put them through and support everybody and to an extent, but also test mm-hmm. them and, and hold, you know, hold them accountable and at a certain point, no matter how good or how good a dude is, like, there's a point where they're not passing the standard and they need to go and circle back and come back if you if you want to do that, you know, or some dudes will be lucky enough to be kept around and recycled and they get the chance to, to train within the school kind of environment and then get back on the next team. Like, I've seen that happen, you know, multitude of times. Some guys get hurt. Good guys get hurt, you know, and just like you said, in this, people get hurt and killed and that would happen during training and you know there, i had guys that i knew in the pipeline that had been through like three or four courses up to certain points got hurt set back again you know that's that's all a part of that that experience and what separates you know the guys that make it to the guys that don't the guys that understand that guy really had no business being in the community at all because of what you just mentioned like you should just know that if you're not ready you're not ready quit come back train do what you can, do what you gotta do but don't hold the team back it's not about you
1: that's gotta be like a a huge lack of self-awareness at the same time, you're looking for the guy who's just not super physically talented, but puts out and will crush themselves to hang on, you know, to do what they need to do to meet the standard. Like, because really all the physical tests are just ways to find out what's inside their head because you're not going to go have a push-up contest in a war zone. You know, like that's not ultimately what you're selecting for. You're looking for a lot more than just the ability to exercise But yeah, when when someone just is not only physically incapable, but also mentally weak and, and just keeps giving up and giving up and giving up, filtering that out is exactly what the course is designed for. A quick note from our sponsor. Again, that's me. I'm your sponsor. It goes without saying that you really don't want to be this person that we're describing at Soft Selection who is both physically and mentally unprepared for the course. That part is obvious. What's less obvious is what to do in your preparation to ensure that you're not just meeting the standard but exceeding it, and that you don't have any limiting factors that will trip you up and hold you back during your selection course. We've written a 500-plus page textbook covering the entire systematic process of special operations prep training, and also have a training app where we apply those concepts for people going into selection courses all over the world. You can learn more about both at buildingtheelite.com. And now back to our conversation with Chris. As an instructor, what were some of the common signals you saw in, in like, candidates who kind of had that X factor and, and the ones who didn't?
0: Like I said, there are guys that I would have identified that wouldn't make it the distance. You know, there were surprises at Indoc when you look up from the pool and and you see that guy on the side of the pool deck quitting. And you're like, what? I just had breakfast with you, man. Everything was great. You know, And this is horrible, but and the other part is be able to see that and then put your head back down and, and do what you got to do. Cause it's a team sport, but also it's an individual sport at the same time. You know, there are guys that were stellar in the pipeline that were, you know, mediocre when it came to the teams and stuff. Um, and there are guys that were, you know, kind of struggled in the beginning of their careers. And then they're like, they're warriors and like silver star recipients. And, you know, they end up staying in to be, you know, forever um, and, and changing the career field. So I think, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And somebody, another mentor of mine, uh, said at one point, like how many, how many chances do you give a good, a good guy? And I was like, I don't know, three, four, you know, and he was like all of them. I'm like, okay, well that, that puts things in perspective, like not to protecting a person, you know, and not to, there's a balance in there somewhere. I don't know where it is, but it's, and I think it's a subjective slash objective thing. And it's an individual basis is like, everybody's going to struggle at some point. It may not be selection. It may be at the team, you know, with marriage, it may be at the team with your kids. It may be at the team with uh, addiction, a family member dying or something. Something can catalyze and trigger in somebody that, you know, get them to the point where they're, uh, maybe it's a mission. Some guys go through some horrific, see some horrific things that change their lives forever. And to me, I liken it to having experienced it, Having having your cup too full, your cup's full. And then it only takes a little bit of stuff before that it makes you kind of spill over. And, you know, in selection, there are moments of chaos. There are moments, peaks and valleys. And I think all of that is, you know, stress inoculation. If you took a guy out of the pipeline at any point and you threw him into a combat scenario, like some guys are going to be okay. But then most people are going to crumble in that scenario where, you know, it's chaos and everything's going going wrong around you and people are getting blown up and dying and stuff. And and that can happen at any point in the career where it's just too much. Life, life adds up, you know. It doesn't happen to everybody. Some guys go through their whole, you know, the whole thing, and they they just have a big cup. Some guys are smaller, you know, with their cups, so and are affected in different ways with different stuff. So I think it's just knowing as a the days where I was lucky enough to be training guys, being able to identify where guys are at and seeing, you know, you want to fill their cup just enough and then give them time to to empty it again with that, and then just slowly build them up to more and more and more and more over time. It's a great question, and it's the thing we're always trying to figure out. How do we get guys through into these career fields and how do we make them resilient? And how do we walk that line of, you know, enough selection but not too much to where we're losing the good yeah. people? You know?
1: Yeah, that's that's one of the hard parts is yeah, some people have the raw material. You know, they they just need some kind of skill set, they need support in some way, and then they can become amazing operators. Like a lot of the the people I knew that were really respected in the in the NSW community as Swick or Seal guys, weren't like amazing physical performers. They weren't like top of the class in, in some of their stuff in their courses, but they hit the standard. They put out as much as they had to, to get there. And then they were great assets to the community afterward. So it's, it's a lot more than just finding the best exercisers, you know, like there's, there's a lot more that you're looking for than that.
0: Yeah, there's there's a lot of fit people that quit right away for whatever reason. And we could speculate all day about high performers early. And the one thing about the pipelines or the career field, and that's kind of what I was, I guess, getting at without even realizing, is that something in your career is going to be that moment where you're going to get pushed to your limit. And it's either going to be a, a moment of pivot or it's going to be a moment of push through. And, and those, are, those are never ending. It doesn't ever stop. And that's a misconception, I think. Right after Indoc, I was with the team and just being the, you know, whatever, the salty old guy at that point at that team. <laughs> everybody was talking like we were done. And I'm like, hey, guys, like, this is a great moment. Soak it in. Like, we made it through together, you know, through Indoc. Uh, but we got an entire pipeline to get through. And then we have to go through our career and train up and be part of a team and, and be a contributor throughout. You know, we're, we're just beginning. And they're like, oh, you know, just, you're always being negative and talking down, <laughs> is reality bros like we we graduated in doc with 22 out of 120 something at the end of the pipeline seven originals graduated and got their berets so the one thing about i will say about pararescue in in contrast to a lot of the other selection processes with other career fields is i'd argue that pararescue is kind of is the longest without actually becoming getting your beret and becoming a pj the seals go through buds and then there's been different I don't know everything about every career field, so forgive me if I'm making, uh, making some assumptions. But from what I've seen, there's different times with SQT or whatever they're calling it, where you actually get your trident. Like that has been a moving target at different periods, right? So sometimes out of blood you get your, your trident, other times after SQT, and sometimes it's whatever. So um, same thing with the you know the Green Berets, same thing with the Rangers. It's just, you know, there are guys that would two and a half, three years of being a student, a cone, we call them, mm-hmm. um, and I was called. As you're going through it like you go through all of it for two and a half years before you see that you get that beret and you're, you're out with the team so it's just different you know it's, it's longer and worse in some ways but I, then it also i think getting dumped into a team after you know a short amount of, tra- of front-end training is, is also difficult in its own way
1: that's it for today we're going to split this episode into two parts and run the second half in a few days